Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. I'd like to welcome back our listeners to part two of an interview with Dr. Stephen Flanagan and Erica Travato. I also wish to take this occasion to welcome both of you back, too. So let's begin where we left off at the end of the first part of the interview. Last time, we spoke with you about various topics regarding traumatic brain injury. So Dr. Travato, a key element in predicting outcomes would appear to be a patient's resilience and positive willingness to want to participate actively in all aspects of rehabilitation aimed at improving quality of life. Are there situations when these factors are not present? And if so, how do you deal with them? Uh, This is a great question because this is um, one of the unique factors that I think takes place in patients who have had brain injuries. So this is not uncommon to see within brain injury rehabilitation. A lot of times this is due to a multitude of different factors, but typically due to their cognitive impairments, which have led to limited insight and awareness of of what their deficits are. So a lot of times we do have difficulties with engaging patients and having them be willing to participate. And so it can be quite challenging to to all all members of the staff. But this is where I think rehabilitation really shines as far as having an interdisciplinary approach to each one of the patients. So the staff is really wonderful at being able to find factors that the patient seems to be motivated by, whether it be sports teams, whether it be cars, whatever their interest, we'll try to utilize that interest and be able to integrate that into their therapy sessions and be able to try to, you know, sway them to to participate more and more as they hopefully continue to demonstrate improvement in their cognitive impairment so that they have more awareness of what's been going on to them. Another limiting factor may be whether the patient's behavior, you know, sometimes they'll have post-traumatic agitation, even post-traumatic depression. So with, again, with the interdisciplinary staff, we're able to identify this, acknowledge it, and hopefully mitigate it with different types of management styles so that we're able to better control their behavior or their depression. And then we're able to, again, be able to have them participate more readily in therapy, and we can become creative with that as well. Dr. Flanagan, apart from studying cognitive and behavioral outcomes, in your opinion, are long-term motor dysfunction and movement disorders receiving sufficient attention in the kinds of research being conducted today? That's really an excellent question. The, um, there are so many problems associated with the traumatic brain injury, and you touched based on some of them, cognitive issues, emotional issues. 
but also motor issues as well. And and I would say that uh, by and large, much more research needs to be done to really understand the pathophysiology of, of many of these motor disorders. And even I would say of disorders that are more well known following brain injury, uh, something as simple as, as hemiplegia. You know, the approach that we take in rehabilitation medicine, although individualized, often I would argue there is probably not uh, individualized enough. There are so many different motor patterns that one can see after hemiplegia uh, that occurs from either stroke or brain injury. What really is the best approach to take? It really needs to be individualized based on what's happening in the brain, what we see clinically, and what makes sense for the patient. And what I suspect we're going to see going forward is a much more uh, individualized treatment approach to someone who has hemiplegia after stroke that is more specific to that particular person's individual phenotype. That is what we're actually seeing uh, in, the, in the clinic. We have multiple techniques, you know, electrical stimulation, various types of, of uh, magnetic stimulation, various types of therapeutic approaches. What therapy, uh, at what intensity, at what time of recovery works best for any one individual, and that's really what needs to uh, happen. And, and we're seeing more and more of that. I would also say that some of the lesser known motor disorders, ataxia, various issues of motor control also need to be addressed and does, uh, does require a greater attention, I believe. So this is an excellent question, but with traumatic brain injury, there are so many things to look at. It's almost hard to select uh, what, the, uh, what a problem that you're gonna tackle in any type, particular research project or study but it's a great topic. I'm glad you brought it up. Much more needs to be done. Along lines of many other kinds of things to look at, Dr. Travato, advances in technology have the potential to improve patient care. Some examples might be assistive devices, rehabilitation robotics, implanted neuroprostheses, use of virtual reality environments for training, and even use of mobile health and telehealth platforms. What progress do you see being made in the incorporation of these kinds of approaches to patient care? Again, I think this is a, this is a great question that, you know, as far as the advancement of rehabilitation and understanding uh, the multitude of different deficits that come with having such a diagnosis, also comes with the passion of research to try to come up with novel ways of, of treatment and uh, therapeutic interventions. So within my experience, I have seen where, again, the interdisciplinary approach within the rehabilitation staff has really started to look outside the box, if you will, as far as incorporating novel therapies. So I have heard of, although I have not personally experienced, use of mobile health and, and telehealth platforms. I do think in the brain injury population, it comes with the need for a physician and for the staff to have a real familiarity with the patient. It's difficult to, in my opinion, to utilize something along the lines of, of mobile health and telehealth platforms just because patients can can wax and wane and they can have, you know, different behaviors, different patterns that, you know, that is, I think, part of being a rehab physician. You become familiar with those patients and you know what their what their patterns are. And so it's it's difficult to utilize those types of t advances in technology uh, for, for patient care in this population. 
I have heard of institutions using uh, virtual reality environments, especially with patients who have sustained some visual deficits from the brain injury environment, as well as some neuroprostheses depending upon their deficits as well. Again, these are all novel ways of approaching rehabilitation, and in the brain injury population especially, I think it, it takes it takes a certain type of a patient and the ability of the physician to integrate these novel advances into their therapeutic realm, and it's, it varies really across the board. How well developed are the available prognostic tools to predict and define outcomes after TBI, or do you think there's room for improvement in that aspect of producing effective interventions? Well, there's certainly room for improvement in uh, predicting what happens to somebody after traumatic brain injury. And when you talk about prognosis, there's so many different things you can talk about. Are you talking about uh, survival during the acute phase? Are you talking about uh, prognosis with regards to emerging from a disordered level of uh, consciousness? Are you talking about how well somebody will function with regards to their societal roles over the long term? So there are so many different um, ways of looking at prognosis. We do know a bit. You know, we know a bit about uh, prognosticating acutely. The Glasgow Coma Score uh, is something that's widely used, and we do know that the lower your score very acutely, the less likely you are to survive the short term, although that is not an absolute definitive. We can have people who have low Glasgow Coma Scores who go on to have excellent recoveries. There are other prognostic signs like uh, increased intracranial pressure during the acute phase after TBI or hypotension or hypoxemia that may pretend a a poor prognosis. Other medical problems, uh, including the possibility of having a previous traumatic brain injury, may portend a less good prognosis. But at the end of the day, when you look at all of these prognostic factors and apply them to any one individual, we're not really very good at determining who will do better than than others. Expect strongly that genetics plays a role in this, and there have been some reports that many of our listeners are familiar with, uh, looking at the APOE4 allele, which is a marker of familial dementia, uh, has also been shown to be a potential marker of poorer outcomes. But there are just some people who simply defy all of these odds. They may have excellent prognostic signs, yet don't do well over the course of time uh, with regards to reintegrating back into their communities and their societal roles and some who just have the worst prognostic signs who for some reason seem to defy the odds and do exceptionally well. Uh, So there's a lot of work that we need to do with regards to prognostication. And and I guess one of the lessons to learn here is that particularly early on, I, I believe it's very important to give folks with traumatic brain injury the opportunity to benefit from the highest quality rehabilitation possible. Even those who are in altered levels of, of consciousness have been shown over the course of time to emerge from those disorders of consciousness and, 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 and show improvement, sometimes even more than a year out from their injury. So with regards to traumatic brain injury, uh, I think it's vitally important that these folks be given the opportunity to receive the quality care that they all deserve because you just don't know with traumatic brain injury. It's so different than so many other conditions that we see. Folks improve over the course of time. Give them the opportunity. 
Dr. Travato, as a follow-up to the comments you made earlier to the previous question regarding technology, are there any ways in which the rehabilitation of TBI patients could benefit from the development of more innovations of a non-technology nature? One example might be the production of established diagnostic and treatment guidelines. Absolutely. I think in the traumatic brain injury population, you know, it is one of the grayest areas, if you will. It's not black and white as far as management and treatment guidelines are concerned. And the, these patients, it's difficult, as Dr. Flanagan just alluded to, to really be able to prognosticate beyond some of the more established measures that we have. And so a lot of times patients come in and family members, everyone's asking, what, what do you think is going to happen? How do you feel as though the patient's going to do? And it's really difficult to say because Dr. Flanagan has always taught us, if you've treated one traumatic brain injury patient, well, that's just it. You've only treated one traumatic brain injury patient because patients are different. And so the, the field absolutely would benefit from other, you know, other non-technology types of innovations in treatment. For example, this is where one of my quality improvement projects had come from, or one of the ideas had come from, is just the establishment of the way that we, that we measure sleep after brain injury. And so, as we know um, in the literature, that the sleep-wake cycle is disturbed after a brain injury patient, or after a brain injury. And patients, you know, it, it, it fluctuates through their rehabilitation course, and then this sometimes will translate into function. And so, we really have no means right now other than the use of subjective you know, observation based on if a patient's sleeping or not. So we, we're not even really, we don't really have an established way of measuring sleep in these patients. So I just use that as an example as one of the most basic types of functions, physiological functions of a person that we can't really establish in a brain injury patient that we know has a disruption in this cycle. So I do feel as though the patients really would benefit from more innovations, but a lot of times we have to first be able to look at the most basic parameters of our care and establish those first, and then we really need a lot of research to back up all of these, uh, these different innovations that we're trying to, to manage and to treat. Dr. Flanagan, with many health conditions, unfortunately a cure is not going to be a probable outcome. When TBI results in a negative prognosis, what's being done to define and produce effective methods for breaking what's going to be some really bad news to patients and their family members about reduced chances for significant recovery? Well, this is really an excellent question again, and I would say that uh, you know, breaking bad news to patients, regardless of the diagnosis, whether it's a traumatic brain injury or cancer or a stroke, this really brings in the art of medicine and not just necessarily the science. And I think that uh, clinicians who are attracted to uh, treating folks with that traumatic brain injury, you know, or, you know I, I think are a certain type that uh, have uh, uh, dedicated uh, their careers to spending a lot of time with patients and with families. And not that everybody is good at this, I suppose, uh, but over the course of time, you know, if you're going to be spending lots of times with patients and families, and trust me, these families have good questions, often pertaining to prognosis, 
you have to really be careful in how you, you talk to them. And, and, and I say that uh, because at, at the one side, you, know, you want to be open and, and give uh, people honest opinions. But on the other side, you, know, you want to make sure that you never take hope away completely. As I said before, sometimes we simply can't prognosticate fully. Take, for example, rather somebody who is in a vegetative state after a traumatic brain injury. Certainly, the longer that you're in that state, the less likely you are to recover, but there is a uh, notable percentage of, of patients, it's small, who will emerge from a vegetative state even uh, beyond a year after traumatic brain injury. Certainly not the case for other causes like anoxia or metabolic causes, but you always have to balance what might seem like uh, negative uh, prognostic signs with the hope that there may be some recovery. It's a balancing game. Um, there's no science to it. I think it's just uh, uh, developing a skill when going into this field. Dr. Travato, fatigue is one of the most frequent and persistent sequelae of brain injuries. Not only can it exacerbate cognitive problems, it can lead to associated difficulties such as sleep dysfunction, which you've already mentioned. What kinds of interventions have been effective in dealing with fatigue? Wonderful question, uh, something I'm absolutely very much interested in. So as far as interventions that have been effective, I think the first and most important is just knowledge that there is a sleep-wake dysfunction that typically does occur after a brain injury. Obviously, when they're in the more acute setting, typically in an ICU, there's a lot going on. They may have been put into a medically induced coma, or it may have just been one of the sequelae from the uh, brain injury itself. So once they are transferred over to inpatient rehabilitation, one of our jobs, I think, is to identify how the patient's sleep cycle is functioning. And if there is a dysfunction, then we have to try to manage and treat that as best as possible. So beyond acknowledgement or beyond um, noticing that there is a dysfunction there, first thing we try to do is modify the environment. So we try to have, you know, lights on, blinds open, let in as much sunlight as possible during the day, keep the patient up as much as possible as well. If patients are taking a daytime nap, that will obviously disturb their sleep at night. So then at nighttime, we try to do things as setting a, you know, setting a bedtime for the patient, having regular routines at night, whether it be bathing, showering, things along those lines, trying to decrease the amount of stimuli at night, and then making sure that the lights are out, TVs off, things along those lines, very basic types of non-pharmacological interventions to try to regulate the sleep-wake cycle and, and give good sleep hygiene, which is also something that we try to speak to patients about, even in the outpatient setting who are complaining of, of uh, sleep dis dysfunction or sleep disturbance. Beyond that, there really isn't a lot of literature or research to back up the use of a lot of the medications that are used for sleep-wake dysfunction in this population. A lot of attention has been given to the use of melatonin, thought to be natural medical supplement or pharmacological intervention to give to these patients, which a lot of times is effective. However, it depends upon the availability of this medication, depending which institution you're at. But I do feel as though that's one of the more widely accepted medications used to treat sleep dysfunction. Beyond that, there are also medications such as uh, trazodone, which is antidepressant medication that at lower doses is known to produce sleep. 
and we use that um, oftentimes in male and female patients as long as they do not have any cardiac abnormalities that would be a contraindication to the utilization of this medication. We would prescribe that. A lot of times then we would try we would be trying to track the patient's sleep to see how well the medication interventions are and then that we would titrate based upon that. Other medications that are typically used for sleep in an outpatient setting, clonazepam, Lunesta, a lot of these medications try to stay away from, although people's practices are very different. Um, but for different reasons, um, other medications aren't used as widely as more of the popular ones that I've spoken about. Yeah, I would add you know, clearly that dealing with uh, good sleep hygiene is so important, and I agree with Dr. Travato 100%. Uh, but fatigue is such a common problem, and it probably extends even beyond just the uh, issue of uh, poor sleep. Promoting a healthy lifestyle with exercise and moderation of activities so you're not overdoing it. Dr. Travato, I think, provided a, an excellent uh, review of some of the medications we use to try to uh, promote good sleep. Uh, which ones to stay away from, but there are other medications that we should try to avoid. Anything that's sedating potentially has an adverse effect on, on, on fatigue. And we also have to just look at other potential medical problems that may be associated with uh, traumatic brain injury, like pituitary dysfunction, which may contribute to um, uh, fatigue after TBI and is a direct result of the traumatic brain injury. So it's a, it's a big problem. It's a, a major complaint. So we just like everything else, just have to look at the whole picture. Something that while Dr. Flanagan was speaking that I thought of as well is that uh, neuro fatigue is not uncommon after brain injury. So a lot of times we will also look at it as that we have to provide neurostimulation for the patient during the day. And so there's other pharmacological interventions that we use, including medications such as amantadine or methylphenidate, also known as Ritalin, which has been shown in, uh, in the literature to help with stimulation and arousal, which may be able to combat the sequelae of having neuro fatigue. Doctors Flanagan and Travato, I'm going to conclude part two of this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights regarding key aspects of traumatic brain injury. Your involvement in the care of these individuals should prove highly interesting for listeners of this podcast series. So again, thank you very much, and I wish you both continued success in all your endeavors. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.